Amen. Well, I trust that if you have been with us uh, the past several weeks at Miller Baptist, uh, you've known that we are going through the book of Revelation in the Bible, the very last book of the Bible. And you might be surprised this morning to hear that our sermon text is not in the book of Revelation. Uh, we are going to be preaching on the book of Revelation this morning, picking up Psalm uh, on the way. And we are specifically going to take some time uh, this morning to follow a theme through Scripture and watch it arrive at its climax and its fullest meaning in Revelation chapter 5, which we preached on last week. Specifically, the subject that we're going to be looking at this morning that culminates in the book of Revelation is the subject of prayer. Prayer. And we're going to be answering the question this morning, what happens to our prayer? When we pray, where does it go? Does it just evaporate into the air? What does God think about our prayer? How does God view prayer? And not only in a practical local, my life since I pray, God provides things, but in a cosmic, global, God's throne room of heaven way, how does prayer fit into God's working of the world? How does He think about prayer? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you have not found prayer to be difficult, it's because you have not yet prayed. It is difficult. It is long. Sometimes it feels as if prayers are unanswered. Maybe you've said or you've heard someone say before, sometimes I feel like when I pray it doesn't make it past the ceiling. They just kind of hear. God, I don't know if God's hearing or catching or if anything's even coming back. What I think Revelation helps us do is get a picture of prayer that is ultimate in the Bible. A picture of prayer that can encompass all of the aspects, all of the intentions, all of the natures, the purposes of prayer. And we're going to begin seeing it in our Bibles in Exodus. You can flip back in your Bibles to Exodus. Probably want to catch up around chapter 30. We're going to land there and begin there and end in the book of Revelation. First, I want to pray as would be fitting and ask for God to be with us this morning. Father, would you help us as we open your word now to hear it for what it is, not the word of man, but the word of God which is at work in those who believe. Would you help it foster belief today? Would you help us be exuberant and energized and eager to pray to you because of your word about prayer today. Father, you might convict us about not praying. 
you might encourage us to keep praying. You know what we need. Would you make this word useful for every purpose, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Practically and locally speaking, a few thoughts before we get to Exodus. Prayer is, in general, requesting God's work in our world. So asking for his promises to come true in our world. So prayer is a real-time, real-life, God working and responding to me in my life activity. An example is the way Paul asked for prayer when it comes to evangelism as an example. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul asked the church to pray that utterance would be given to him in opening his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So Paul is praying, help God, I would pray that God would open my mouth so I can proclaim the gospel. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, pray that God may open a door for us, for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Paul says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run and be glorified. Pray for me in my mouth. Pray for open doors out there for your providence to move people and stuff around. Pray for the word to go out and be active. Paul is praying for God to be active in his ministry. Asking God to do things that only God can do and only God can arrange. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the, earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into the fields. Pray that God sends special agents, that God spends re, sends reinforcements, that God does something in response to prayer in our lives here now. And that's the way prayer works. It's practical. It, it's us asking for God and God providing and giving things in His time and in timeliness for our lives. But prayer also has various natures to it. Uh, one guy, John Piper, put it this way, this is the place of prayer on the battlefield of the world. It's a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. It malfunctions in the hands of soldiers who have gone AWOL. I remember reading this and hearing this for the first time and thinking, this is helpful. This, this ups my ante in prayer. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, calling in reinforcements, asking for God to do things. This is not about God bringing me another Dr. Pepper so I can watch TV at night. This is God bringing about his kingdom, fighting against enemies. Some of you are convicted because you've prayed, hoping that Dr. Pepper would make it to the couch it's not, it's not what prayer's for. It's a wartime walkie-talkie. And yet at the same time, we can't be so narrow with prayer to think about it that way because God is comforting. I'm reading this week in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. Surely God does not chide his children for praying for comfort. He is the God of all comfort. God doesn't respond to his children by saying, quit playing for comfort. That's a, that's a wartime walkie-talkie. Quit, quit calling in for me to come be with you and give you rest and things like that. God doesn't 
feel that way. Yeah, I, I think Piper's right that we, we, we need that emphasis of wartime prayer, calling in reinforcements, power from on high. And yet it can be a prayer for comfort. Prayer, prayer does so many things. We can't even begin to expound this morning the, the number and kinds of things that we pray for. We can go to the Psalms and find imprecatory prayers, destruction for the enemies, prayers for providence, prayers for praising, prayers for salvation, for needs, about loneliness, thanking God for salvation. But I want to ask this morning, what is prayer to God on a kind of cosmic level? What's all prayer to God? Jesus taught us to pray in secret, and your Father who is in heaven will hear you. Prayer is personal, it's intimate. It's a relationship that I have with God. I talk to God myself, and He hears me. It's personal and intimate. And yet, how we view prayer in the global scheme of what God is doing in His judgment and redemption in all time. To begin to understand an overarching umbrella understanding of prayer, we're going to begin as I had you turn the book of Exodus. The quick background for Exodus is that God has chosen a people for himself in Abraham, bound himself to them, bound his name to this people. By God's strange providence, they find their way into Egypt They end up being enslaved there for 400 years. God raises up Moses who, by God's power, leads them out of captivity and slavery, leads them out into the wilderness and begins to lead them toward the promised land. It's a picture of our salvation in Jesus Christ, God saving us from the slavery of sin, as Linda read for us this morning. But along the way, Moses, in Exodus chapter 19, goes up to Mount Sinai. He gets instructions from the Lord, namely the Ten Commandments. But he also receives instructions about how to build this thing they call the tabernacle, which just means tent. It was a place of worship that they carried with them everywhere they went until the permanent temple was built during the time of Solomon. It was the place where the Holy of Holies was. It was the place where the basins for washing were. It's the place where the blood was applied. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was their place of worship where God would meet with them and be with his people wherever they went. Look with me in Exodus chapter 30. We're going to see some pieces, Exodus 30, 1 through 7. We're going to see a piece here of what Moses was shown on the mountain. Multiple times through Exodus when Moses is describing the instructions for the tabernacle, and other commands for Israel, it says that Moses did this according to what was shown him on the mountain. What we're going to read right here in Exodus 30, 1 through 7, is part of that instruction that Moses received while he was on the mountain, what he saw. And in particular, we're going to look at something <coughs> that's called the altar of incense. The altar of incense. Read with me Exodus chapter 30, verse 1. We'll go ahead and read through 8. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top 
and around its sides and its horns. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet you. Verse 7, and Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Aaron shall burn, Aaron the priest, shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Now, you might remember weeks back that the priests were instructed to keep the lampstands lit 24 hours a day as well. And that goes for the incense in the temple as well. Priests, when you go in to make sure the lamp is lit and keep going day and night, make sure the incense is going day and night. Go with me to Exodus chapter 30, verse 34 through 38, a few verses later. We get more detail and purpose about the altar of incense. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacte, onica, and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense, of which there shall be an equal part. So a four-part incense on a four-sided square, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put it and put part of it before the testimony of the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you, and it shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. You shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whatever, whoever makes any like it, to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. You don't, you don't buy this at HEB. You, you cannot use this in your diffuser at home. This recipe, this concoction of spices is holy to the Lord. To make it at home and, and treat it like it's just some normal incense in the house, to, to use it in your living, to fight the odor from your socks, is, is worth being cut off from God's people. This goes to God and to God alone, this incense. In Leviticus chapter 4, verse 7, and Numbers chapter 4, verse 16, when the priests are being given instructions about how to handle the spices and given commands on making sure they are ushering in the use of the spices, in both places it's referred to as a fragrant incense. We've seen the perfumers are meant to put this together. This is to be a fragrant incense. That means it smells good. It smells good. 
So far, we've seen the Old Testament, this altar of incense, a spice arrangement, which is exclusively a recipe to God himself, a good-smelling incense before the Lord in the Holy of Holies, all part of the worship of Yahweh in the tabernacle as shown to Moses on the mountain. But I want you to see how it becomes even more important in Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. What's happening in Leviticus chapter 16? A very, very important day in the calendar year of Israel's worship. This is referred to as the Day of Atonement. The entirety of the chapter describes the one day a year when the high priest will enter into the most inner place in the tabernacle or the temple and offer blood on behalf of the sins of all of Israel. Once a year, high priest into the very presence of God, offering blood for the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to see incense in this process. Leviticus chapter 16, look at verses 11 through 13. See if you can catch how important this incense is for this high priest. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. The incense even has a protective measure for the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, he goes in to make this atonement. It is a deathly, terrifying thing for the high priest. Men have died for less mistakes than forsaking and neglecting the holiness of God in the Holy of Holies. And without this incense filling the Holy of Holies, he would die. Incense was not just some cute outer room sent to please God's waiting room customers, not just an air freshener for priests. This has to do with the priest's righteousness before God the acceptance of the people in God's presence as in the priest. And Israel and the priest were supposed to highly value this altar and this incense. This was part of their national treasure in their place of worship. It was the place, it was the means where the people would unite to God, where God would meet with them and go with them. It's not just furniture place setting in religious ceremonies. It's part of their relationship to God. If you want, you can take time or flip with me. If not, you can just maybe write this as a reference, 2 Kings chapter 25 
2 Kings chapter 25, verse 14 through 15 is a part of the moment when Babylon is sweeping through the city of Jerusalem and they're going to destroy the entire city. They're going to also destroy God's temple, the Holy of Holies, the altar of incense, the whole thing is going to be laid to waste. And there's a, an insult thrown at the Israelites. There's an insult tossed at the Israel temple when the Babylonians come in and take everything away. Second Kings chapter 25 verse 14 and 15 says, And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans also and the bowls. What was gold, what was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver. So all the entrapments of the altar of incense. When Babylon comes through, part of the disgrace to Israel and their idolatry is that Babylonians are running through the temple and they don't go, hey, y'all be careful. Those are ancient Israeli worship artifacts. They run through and say, hey guys, there's some gold. Y'all grab the gold. Hey, we, we are about to burn this whole thing down. Grab, there's some silver over there. Get some silver. It's nothing to them. It's meaningless to them, except for its earthly treasure value. That represented an all-time low for Israel. For enemies, for foreigners... To be tramping on their place of worship where God dwelt with them, taking the table and the altar of incense and running away like pirates found some treasure. The altar of incense is supposed to be holy to the Lord. Unless you're a priest, you've you probably never even seen it. And they treat it like coins and metal. So com conclusions about the altar of incense in the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament where we're about to turn, these are the things, the highlights that we need to bring forward with us about the altar of incense in the Old Testament. There's an altar built out of gold for incense to be given into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. There's an incense recipe that's just for God. Don't do this at home. This is for the Lord. This is a sweet, fragrant smelling incense. It smells good. It's pleasing to the nose. It's brought to the Holy of Holies to fill the space around the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement where the blood was offered for the forgiveness of of sins. That's the altar of incense. In the New Testament, this altar of incense is really only referred to three times. Once in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah goes in and he sees an angel and hears the word about his son, John the Baptist. The other in Hebrews 9, and then again in Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 8. I want you to look with me at Hebrews chapter 8 and begin looking at the New Testament understanding, reflection, interpretation, use of 
the altar and the incense. In the book of Hebrews, there's much time spent to compare the ministry of Jesus Christ to the ministry of the priests in the Old Testament. The place where Jesus comes from and what he's doing versus what Moses did, versus what the prophets and the priests did in the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, we're specifically going to see Jesus compared to the ministry of the priest in the temple. Look at chapter 8, verse 5. It's going to be a helpful understanding for us about what we just read and understood about the altar of incense going back all the way to Moses. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, talking about the things in the earthly temple on the ground, Solomon's temple, Nehemiah's temple. Those things, they serve as a copy. Hebrews 8, 5. They serve as a copy. The altar of incense, the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant, they all serve as copies and shadows of heavenly things. Heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So do you see what Hebrews is saying? Hebrews is saying when Moses was shown how to build the tabernacle, where to put the tabernacle, he was shown a pattern on on that mountain, but where was that pattern from? It was a pattern, it was a copy of what? Of heavenly things. It wasn't just a random, you know, I'm going to have a temple. God said, you know, Moses, may as well do it like this. No, it was a, here is the pattern of the heavenly reality. The temple, the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant, the altar of incense, all the, the basins and the washings and the blood, they're all copies and shadows, earthly, historical copies and shadows of the heavenly things, the real things. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. Now, when the first covenant had regulations of worship and an earthly place of holiness, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared in the first section in which there were the lampstand and the table of bread and of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a, a second section called the most holy place, having in it, the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it, in the earthly temple, above that Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Having studied Revelation 4 and 5 the last couple of weeks, we should be making some connections between what Moses saw on the mountain when he was instructed to build their tabernacle and what John saw when he walked through the open door in heaven and saw the throne room of God. And at the center of both is blood 
in the presence of God for sinners. At the center of Moses' tabernacle and the temple, at the center of the throne room of God, is blood offered for the forgiveness of sinners. Look next in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. The priestly ministry goes on and on and on and repeats and repeats, but chapter 9, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not even in this world, he, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When Jesus died on the cross... He did not just come down to the earthly temple that Moses saw on the mountain and that Solomon built. Rather, he entered. Christ, in his death and resurrection, entered into the actual heavenly throne room presence of God. Christ did not offer the blood of bulls and goats going along with the ancient ritual given to Moses Jesus offered his own blood. Jesus was a high priest of God who offered his own blood. He did not offer a sacrifice that would last just for a year until the next year, until the next day of atonement, and until the next year and the year after. No, the blood of Christ secured eternal redemption. This imagery... And the imagery of the throne room of Revelation 4 and 5 are the same. In Revelation 5, before God on the throne of all creation, who is there? The cherubim, these strange living creatures around the throne. But most importantly, who is nearest to God? The slain lamb of Revelation chapter 5. The slain lamb who alone is worthy to take the scroll. The slain lamb of whom it is sung in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll. That history recording, the plan of God's judgment and redemption. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you, the slain lamb, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. At the center of Moses' tabernacle and the temple is blood for sinners. At the center of heaven's throne is blood shed for sinners. But in heaven, it's Christ himself who is the slain lamb. Now, what does all this have to do with prayer and incense? Go back one verse in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, 
verse 8. We blew by it last week. Hardly mentioned it. We're going to rest in it here. Revelation 5.8. We talked about it just a little bit last week. That moment when Christ, when John saw Jesus take the scroll from the hand of God. He takes God's plan, his will for judgment and redemption, and Christ alone is worthy to execute and oversee it and to unveil it. That's Jesus alone who has that authority. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Instead of cherubim carved out of gold on the ark of the covenant, instead of the four living creatures around the throne of God, the living creatures here are terrifyingly living. All their eyes are blinking and seeing and their voices are worshiping God in unison. But look what they are holding in their hands. Four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. When these living creatures and the 24 elders bow down, they have with them handfuls, as it were, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The incense in heaven's throne room is the prayer of the saints. Dear church, do you want to know where your prayers have been going all this time. Our prayer is that sweet, fragrant incense that fills the throne room where the blood is offered to purchase sinners. Do you want to know where your prayer for daily bread goes? Your prayer for protection? Your prayer for forgiveness? Your prayer for God's help? For God's strength? For God to open a door? They go before God. Where they fill the throne room with sweet, fragrant smells which are enjoyed exclusively they're for no one else. You can't take this home. There might be some joy and pleasure in the angels and the living creatures watching in, but this incense is holy to the Lord. It's for Him. We should never say that a true, genuine prayer in the name of Christ doesn't get past the ceiling. Never believe that a genuine prayer in the name of the slain lamb is forgotten by God. 
Instead, see where our prayer goes. See that our prayer goes up before God like incense, filling the heavenly holy of holies with smells of praise and pleasures to God that I think should and ought to be likened to a fresh garden in the morning. That's the whole design of the temple to begin with, the garden. Our prayers are heavenly, aromatic means of worship to God. What we pray, God inhales in pleasure. Let us see an even higher moment, an even sharper view of the place of prayer in the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. We're short on time for this, and I know some of you are, you know, since we started the book of Revelation, your whole, you've just been waiting for Revelation chapter 6, when we can get to the judgments and hear all the explanations and all those things. So we're going to just do a, a quick teaser of those things. Revelation chapter 6 through 8 is the depiction of the judgment on the world between the time of Jesus' death and the resurrection and the end. The, the final judgment. When we get to the chapter, in chapter 8 here, what we're going to read in chapter 8, 1 through 4, I think we're depicting, we're, we're seeing a vision of the end of history of this world as it is. The last judgment has been and is being poured out. So we're going to jump ahead just for a moment this morning to see that seventh seal be opened. Each seal representing some judgment, some ministry of God, of Christ to the earth. But this is that moment in Revelation 8, 1 through 4, when those things are wrapping up and the saints have come in, look what it says, Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, listen, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And this is incredible. There's a moment in time when all of heaven is silent. The living creatures, the myriads upon myriads of angels, the elders, everyone, everything is silent. And in that moment, after all the number of the saints have come in, as it says in chapter 6, verse 11, after the sky vanishes like a scroll being rolled up in chapter 6, verse 14. After the great day of wrath on the earth comes, chapter 6, verse 16. Then after those who have had their robes washed by the blood are secured, chapter 7, verse 14. Then what happens? Then in heaven a hush is called for. Quiet, living creatures, angels, Everyone be quiet. And an angel comes and brings the prayers of the saints before God as incense and worship. And all the prayer of all the church rises before God as incense to him.
I've got a few applications here, but one I think is just the most pertinent. I think we tend to think too little about prayer and what it means to God in the cosmic plan of worshiping Him and His plans coming true. A few things. Number one, prayer is first and foremost about the gospel of the Lamb slain for sinners. The first importance of prayer is that it's incense. As it is incense, it is such around the Holy of Holies. In the most holy place, the copy things of heaven, in heaven itself, around the slain lamb where the blood is offered for sinners. The first most important thing about prayer is, is that it accompanies the gospel. It worships God with the gospel. The, the good news that at, at the throne of heaven, at the feet of God, there's blood spilt and offered on our behalf so that we who have sinned can be at peace with the creator and the judge of all things. The, the first most important prayer that any of us can ever pray is not about plans, not about parking spots, not about retirement, not, not about sicknesses, not about getting anything, but the prayer that goes up to God that says, thank you for the blood of Christ crucified for my sin. The incense is in and around the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, accompanying the praise and worship to God for the blood offered for sinners. If you never pray anything else in your life, if you don't pray anything else today, go to God and pray. Thank you for Christ's blood for my sin. Confess that you're a sinner like the rest of us here. If you're new to the church, if you're new to this church, let me just go ahead and let you know, the more you get to know us, the more you'll find out that we're sinners. And we just all need Christ. That's the most important prayer. That, that's one of the reasons why every single Sunday we have a moment where we just read the gospel and pray the gospel as Linda did for us this morning. We just read it and remind ourselves Christ crucified for us, and then we pray in response to the gospel. And all those prayers just being brought in and swirling and rising at the throne of God in heaven. Thanks for the blood spilt for sinners. Pray that today if you pray nothing else. Second thing, second application is that no prayer in the name of Christ is lost. Your prayer goes somewhere no prayer in the name of Christ is ever pointless. Every prayer in the name of Christ for the purposes of God are caught up in the voices of the people of God, going up to God in a cosmic, continual collection of prayer with all the saints of God. It's unimaginable what John is seeing. He's seeing 2,000 years, a billion prayers going up like incense before God. Growing up, I listened to probably more than anyone, and maybe even still today, an artist named Garth Brooks. I don't know if you guys have ever, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him. But he has this song called Unanswered Prayer, kind of a cheap, corny song about marrying the right girl or beer or dogs or something, I don't know. 
But the line just goes, I, I, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. And I remember thinking growing up, this is good. I think our, he must be a Christian. He's singing about prayer. In fact, I tried to, I begged my dad to let me sing a Garth Brooks song at church once when I was in middle school. I was not allowed to do so because my dad was smart. But I just wonder sometimes we just don't think this way. You know, there's just, some, there's just some prayers that are just unanswered. Sometimes I'm praying God just doesn't say anything, just doesn't do anything, doesn't really go anywhere, doesn't really accomplish anything. Friends, don't believe this for a moment. If we're, praying, if we're praying as Christ has taught us for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, for his provision, for his protection, for his help against temptation and sin, it's going to the throne room of God. And it is heard, and it is received, and it is counted among the prayers of the saints as worship. And it is accompanying to God seeing to his plan being fulfilled. Nothing is lost on God. No prayer is wasted. No prayer for justice in the world gets lost on God. No prayer for restoration of things in the world to be right or lost. No prayer for salvation. No prayer for provision. No prayer for God's kingdom to come is ever lost. It's incense. And the Lord counts it precious and he loves the sweet smell of every prayer. Number three, pray prayers that are fit for heaven. When you pray, think. If I could see my prayer at God's throne around the living creatures and the slain lamb for my sin, would my prayer make sense? Would my prayer seem like it's in the vein of what God's doing in the world? Prayer isn't kind of a cosmic grub hub. Just loft up things. Or, or, or kind of one of those you know, games where you put in a quarter and just see what comes out. I'm just going to pray for you. Will it be done? Something will pop out. Just think about our prayers. So, so like the, the second point, no prayer is lost. You can pray the smallest prayer. You can pray the most genuine prayer. It could be a 20-second prayer. God, you're, it could be the prayer Christ taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That prayer's not lost. There's no small prayer that gets lost on God. But also, at the same time, think, is my prayer fit with how God views all prayer? Could I say that this prayer would be a good incense to God as worship? Right? Now, I, I, I think that in the, in, in the realm of the God who is the God of all comfort that a prayer in your small group for fluffy your cat's toenail to be healed it could be part of worship before God somehow but we ought to check ourselves and think am I just praying about my little life and world or am I praying for God's kingdom to come on the earth am I praying for global cosmic movements of God in judgment and redemption so we mentioned what Paul was praying for as an example in evangelism. Paul says, I pray that the utterance, of, uh, utterance may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. I ask that you would pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. I ask that you would pray that the word of the Lord may run and be glorified. Paul, Paul's praying for God's help here and now, but it fulfills purposes and promises of God. 
One of them we saw in passing in Revelation that the end doesn't come till the full number of saints comes in. God's not going to lose one. So we're, when we're praying for God to open doors for evangelism and to give us boldness and speak, we're, we're praying things that God's going to do in His sovereignty and in His, in His plan. So just be careful with petty prayers, personal prayers in the sense of it serves me and myself alone and not God and His movement on the earth. Number four, know that God enjoys our prayer. God enjoys our prayer that prayer for God is not transactional. Prayer for us is not transactional. In the actual temple, the actual priest smelled the actual incense. It was a pleasure to everyone in the room. God breathes it in and smells it and enjoys it, so to speak. Sometimes when Colette and I go on dates, we tend to eat food and go to the bookstore. That's like, I mean, you think, we're, we're old. We're old. We just get books and go to coffee shops and read. That's our date night. Sometimes we'll break out of the norm and we'll go look around and shop at places. And one of the things we'll look at from time to time is candles. Candles. Now, to be honest with you, I, I don't know what my wife's favorite scent is. I don't know what her favorite candle is. Been married 15 years. I should probably know things like this. I just can't think of one right now. But one of my favorite things is when we go out shopping for candles and we're just kind of testing them out. You know, we had nothing, there were nothing else to do, right? We're just young married folk running around smelling candles and seeing which one you like. And one of my favorite things is just take a candle, smell it, and go, I wonder, I wonder if she'll like this one. Hey, babe, come here. Come here, come here. And sometimes she'll smell it and go, nah, <laughs> no thanks. Sometimes she'll smell it and her face will just light up. Yeah, that's the one I want. And then I go secretly buy it and take it home. I love her face when there's something, oh, that's good. God enjoys our prayer. God enjoys our prayer. It's an aromatic worship to him. It doesn't just serve transactional ATM kind of purposes. It's relational. It's love. It's affection. It's trust. It's God relating with us in our prayer. All prayer, number five, is worship. The overarching nature of prayer is really neither comfort for things in our life or provision for things in our life. It's not walkie-talkie, wartime, all those. All, those are all aspects of what we ought to pray for. The overarching understanding of prayer is that it is part of worship to God on his throne in heaven. Every praise and request and need and all of our crying out to God for salvation, all of our pleas for forgiveness, all of our asking for our daily bread, it's all there for worship. It's all praise. It's all pleasure to God. It's not just a device. It's not just a, a tool like an object that we pick up. It has holiness to it. It's holy to the Lord. It's reverence to the worship to the Lord, joy about the Lord. God's not pleased when we just go through rituals of prayer. You can see multiple places in the Old Testament where God comes to Israel and says, I will personally tear down your altars of incense. 
I, I will let Babylon come through and they can destroy the temple and the basin and steal the stuff and destroy it. Because your idolatry is so gross, it, I won't have it any longer. Prayer is worship. Prayer is supposed to be worship. It, it ought to come from our trusting forgiveness in Christ and being righteous before God. It ought to never come against our pride it ought to never be like, well, I, I can live in sin over here and secret sin over here and come pray and ask God for things over here. Prayer is essentially worship. And only when it is brought to the Lord in righteousness and remembering the gospel and Christ for righteousness is it actually worship. Prayer is not just a rote practice in a church service. It is personal, it is corporate. It's not just kind of an ancient practice of honor. It's, it's a heart toward God, a treasuring of God, a trusting of God. And prayer is enjoying bringing joy to God. Our prayer, as we pray to the Lord, not only does it go through the ceiling. When we pray in truth and in the spirit and in trusting Christ. But in heaven, where there is a slain lamb offering his blood. And the temple worship in heaven, where the elders are throwing down their crowns. Where the four living creatures are singing, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Where the myriads and myriads of angels worship God in unison, the prayer of the saints rise up as incense before the Lord. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise for your word. It is big and magnificent and directive and demanding and guiding and instructing, encouraging, convicting. And we pray, Father, that it would do all those things, serve us in all those ways. Father, I pray that you would help our our church to be a, a praying church in our closets, in our gathering, along the way, whatever our need may be. Well, we just take a moment to reflect and to pray now, offering our lives to you, asking for forgiveness, committing our lives to you in righteousness and obedience. Take a moment to pray, and we'll come back and sing in just a moment. God, we give you praise.
For Jesus Christ, our Lord, crucified for our sin, we give you praise that you hear prayer, that you enjoy prayer, that you answer prayer, and that your promises will come true. Help us to walk this week prayerfully, asking for you to open doors, asking for your help to be uh, to give us boldness and help us open our mouths for the sake of the gospel, open our hands for the sake of the gospel, that you might be glorified, and that our joy would increase. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.